In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. David's appetite got the better of him. What he wanted was good, but not for him. In the Summa Theologiae, Thomas Aquinas tells us that love was God's reason for the making of the world and that his goodness permeates creation but in pieces disassembled like a jigsaw puzzle. Aquinas writes, The perfect goodness that exists one and unbroken in God can exist in creatures only in a multitude of fragmented ways. So David was drawn to a fragmentary good. His desire was one that we can instinctively appreciate since without it, none of us would be here. But the wrongness of his acting on it was severe. Our appetites cause trouble when we are heedless of the good of others and the puzzle as a whole. What is love? Willing the good of another person, according to Aquinas. David's motive wouldn't count as love. He wanted Bathsheba for himself. Perhaps her feelings were reciprocal. But David left her husband's good, his kingdom's good, and other puzzle pieces neglected on the floor. Inconveniently, a pregnancy occurred. Plan A was to give Uriah, the husband, grounds to believe that he was the father. What they don't know can't hurt them. When that plan failed, the king successfully arranged to have Uriah killed in battle. Evil, according to Aquinas, is a corruption of the good. Power tends to corrupt, as Lord Acton told us. And in this story, we see why. Only a king could be tempted to sin like David did because it would take a king to pull it off. David's failure is common to men in high places, shadowing the lives and times of several of our recent presidents and even Martin Luther King. Like kings and presidents, prophets are susceptible. When I started SUMA, the high, the high School Theological Debate Camp, I named it partly for the SUMA Theologiae, the SUMA for short. SUMA, the camp, highlights faith's intellectual dimension. According to the SUMA, the book, our intellect is like an appetite. Like David's eye was attracted to the beauty of Bathsheba, our mind's eye is drawn to truth. We call this attraction reason. As the good denotes that towards which the appetite tends, Aquinas writes, so the true denotes that towards which the intellect tends. If truth is the sun, sometimes our sight of it is fogged by other appetites. David had broken three of the Ten Commandments 
the 6th, 7th, and 10th, if you're keeping score. But he was oblivious. Nathan the prophet found a way to lift the fog. Lawyer-like, he caught the king's attention with the case of a poor, honest sharecropper and his beloved lamb. David's first job had been tending sheep so he could relate. A selfish plantation owner took the poor man's lamb to feed his party guests. The king was livid. Is this for real? For real. David's appetite for justice burned. That Simon Legree will die. Coming from a king, that was a verdict, not an empty threat. Nathan had him. He drew out his mirror and held it close to the king's face. Look close, he said. You are the man. The moment of truth. We must no longer be children, Paul writes to the Ephesians. We must grow up by speaking truth in love. At Summa, the camp, the highest honor, the Summa Prize, we call it, is awarded to the camper who best shows us how that's done, speaking truth in love. The prize is $1,000. That's one way to make the point that truth and love are intertwined. Often, finding truth takes expertise, science, logic, math. Aquinas' expertise was logic, and it took him years to learn. Not everyone would have that skill, even if they could take the time. By God's design, love requires no expertise. Everyone can understand, and anyone can do it if they will. It is evident, Aquinas writes, that not all are able to labor at learning, and for that reason Christ has given a short law. Everyone can know this law, and no one may be excused from observing it based on ignorance. This is the law of divine love. For a counterpoint, Franklin Roosevelt once compared our nation's moral progress to our scientific progress unfavorably, which might be taken to suggest that finding truth is easier than loving. According to John Meacham, Roosevelt had drafted a speech that he planned to deliver on Thomas Jefferson's birthday, that would be April 13th, 1945. The speech was discovered on Roosevelt's desk in Warm Springs, Georgia on April 12th, the day he died. This is FDR. Today, science has brought all the different quarters of the globe so close together that it is impossible to isolate them from one another. Today, we are faced with the preeminent fact that if civilization is to survive, we must cultivate the science of human relationships, the ability of all peoples of all kinds to live together and work together in the same world at peace. Let us move forward, he concluded, with a strong and active faith. That's from Meacham's book, The Soul of the America, The Battle for Our Better Angels. 
From 1776 to now, Meacham tracks our national ups and downs in answering to what Lincoln called the better angels of our nature. Meacham wrote the book because he thinks we need to listen to those better angels now. And who could disagree? Aquinas and Roosevelt were both right. Aquinas, because only an Isaac Newton could discover calculus, and Roosevelt, because once discovered, truth is ours to keep, libraries are full of it, but love is more like breakfast. We have to make it every morning. Aquinas called theology the queen of sciences because it is the science that has to reckon both with the library and the kitchen. Summa the Camp is a crash course in truth detection. I tell the students, I didn't bring you here to tell you what to think, but to show you how. They learn the three parts of an argument, claim, evidence, and warrant. Claim, what are you trying to get me to believe? Evidence, what are you giving me to go on? Warrant, how does this evidence support this claim? For example, claim, I say, tomorrow it will rain. Evidence, you ask, why should I believe that? I answer, open the window and take a whiff. You open the window. Oh, you say, the paper mill. Warrant, by what logic does this smell support my claim? It's called an inference from sign. Does the Pine Bluff paper mill cause rain? No, but it lets us know the wind is from the south. And southern winds bring moisture from the Gulf of Mexico. And summer heat means afternoon convection, hot air rising from the earth. Add moisture and boom, summer thunderstorms. In one sentence in our gospel reading, Jesus makes two claims. One, God sent me. And two, faith in me is a sign of God's activity in the heart and mind of the believer. This is the work of God, he said, that you believe in him whom he has sent. Again, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Smartly, people ask Jesus for evidence to support these claims. Moses gave us evidence, they remind him, out there in the wilderness. Our ancestors were hungry and thirsty. And miraculously, he gave them manna for bread and water from a boulder. So show us, what sign are you going to give us that we may see it and believe in you? For John, the gospel writer, this question is like a student's who had dozed off in class. It's summer school. The air conditioning is out and the windows are open. The air is hot moist and heavy with that familiar smell. The boy wakes up and asks the teacher to answer something she has just explained in detail. So why should we believe it will rain tomorrow? Jesus' questioners had been dozing 
In John's gospel, signs followed Jesus everywhere he went. In Cana, he turned water into wine. In Capernaum, he healed a dying child. In Jerusalem, it was a sick old man, too weak to walk. The latest sign had been the most spectacular so far. And these people who were asking for a sign had either seen or heard about it. From five loaves and two fish, 5,000 hungry appetites were satisfied. In a fog, these interrogators failed to draw the inference from sign. Jesus backs up and he tries another tack. With Moses still in mind, he offers an analogy. Analogies are warrants that work by comparison. This is like that. You know what it's like to be hungry, to be given bread? They nod, still digesting loaves that he had given. I'm like that, he says. Those who come to me will never hunger, and those who believe in me will never thirst. He isn't talking now about digestion, but about that activity of God in the heart and mind of the believer that we also call the Holy Spirit. By this, he puts us on watch for good that answers to a longing deeper than hunger even, and more thrilling even, than that dizzy dancing feeling that draws us to each other sometimes. Powerful and necessary though these are, these are only fragments of the good that we need as human beings. We are made for more. And we don't need faith to know this. Aristotle knew it. Reason, he taught, is like an appetite for good things greater than our emotional enjoyment and even greater than our physical survival. We don't live by bread alone. Reason shows us that much. Faith, hope, and love the activity of God in the minds and hearts of all believers now shows us more. Eternal truth, everlasting goodness, and transcendent beauty. These are like coffee, eggs, and bacon cooking in the kitchen early in the morning. Smells wafting up the stairs into the bedroom as we're dressing and getting ready for the day. 